Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I speak to Jeff Mann, Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University and author of, among others, In the Long Run We Are All Dead, Keynesianism, Political Economy and Revolution, and with Joel Wainwright, Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future. We discuss capitalism, state power and climate breakdown, whether the pandemic has ended neoliberalism, and why democracy is so important to anti-capitalist struggle today. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Jeff Mann on just how bad the story of climate breakdown really is today. Hello, Jeff Mann, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Grace. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. It's been a bit of a wild summer uh, for news about climate breakdown. We've seen extreme temperatures, extreme weather events all around the world. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, the state responding to this, whether it's kind of Biden in the US or increasingly the the conservatives over here. Do you think that anything is going to be made of these pledges? Do you think that Joe Biden's going to act decisively to curb climate breakdown? And if so, what are the kind of mechanisms that you can imagine being used uh, to do so? I do not think that Biden will act decisively. And I don't even want to suggest that there is no feeling of urgency in, in the American administration or, you know, in Ottawa or London or anywhere else, to be honest. I do think people have perhaps just this summer, which is astounding if that's true, perhaps just this summer, kind of come to grips with what we might be already facing in many parts of the world and soon to face even in, you know, the most affluent. But I don't think that the kind of action being discussed could be called decisive. I do think we'll see baby step gradualism, perhaps bigger babies taking bigger steps than have in the past. (laughs) But I don't imagine that, to be honest with you, anything will result of this that is adequate to the problem at hand. I have to say that the political, in my mind at least, uh, the political transformations are in some ways necessary before we see climate action at the scale that is required. I mean, when we look at, for example, the IPCC report in all its flaws, it does point to the scale of the challenge and why we need to act quickly because obviously we're either reaching or have gone over a bunch of these tipping points where you start Mm -hmm. to see kind of, you know, non-linear feedback effects Mm -hmm. that create kind of, you know, catastrophic changes in the environment over quite short periods of time. So do you think that because we're not going to see that decisive action quickly, are we past the point of no return? Is it the the memorable lines from your book where you write about all those uh, kind of environmentalists who just say, we're fucked? Are we just fucked? (laughs) Yeah, I perhaps I'm like, everyone else when I say that I have days when I think we are. Um, But I do not ultimately think we're fucked. I do think, however, that the kinds of responses that we will eventually 
muster that might or might not, but hopefully will be kind of adequate to to what what most people are facing in many parts of the world, are going to be organized in much more specific ways, if that makes any sense. It's hard to imagine for me right now solutions coming down from the top. Certainly, we can do things that help. You know, we can jack up the carbon tax as high as possible. We can, you know, create production systems that are greener or lean as much as we can on alternative energy. And those are the kinds of things that can be organized, I suppose, at a sort of higher scale. But I do think that because of the unevenness of the way that climate change's impacts play out, the very idea of the we and the we're fucked is really very vague and in some ways Mm. kind of, I don't know if imperialist is the right term, but you know what I mean? Some people are already quite fucked. And as far as life goes, for me every day, I'm not. And, And I probably won't be very soon. So I think the question is more about the distribution of resources and knowledge, perhaps, if that's the right term, that allows parts of the world or communities to react to, you know, the specifics of their own situation. And that's, I think, the problem with this constant shuffling of the th- of the of the task up to now Glasgow, you know, which it looks like COVID will prevent the leadership of the developing world to even show up at. So we, we defer the answer to the problem to this scale that has proven itself entirely incapable of delivering even the smallest problem. I mean, uh, sl- small solutions. Sorry about that. Big problems, small solutions. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... Well, I'm going I'm to carry on with it. Are we, in the, are we in the Anthropocene or are we in the Oliganthropocene or are we in the Capitalocene? <laughs> My, I'm a little bit of uh, a longtime uh, colleague and friend of, of some of the people who have a lot of stakes in those debates. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they, do, they don't really appear to matter to me too much, if I'm honest. Um, I think we're definitely in some new scene uh, and the very fact that we have understood ourselves as a sort of planetary actor, and again, here the we is very iffy, as I'm using it, the hour and the we, but we are, in a, we are in a new era. But that era, to me, is not marked necessarily by some ecological you know, pinpoint, like in that system that they use to divide the history of the world. It's really about a, you know, a political, political and political economic shift. So if capitalism is the name that we need to lean on to make people recognize that that's fine with me. But, you know, I think, I think the bigger question is how do we organize politically in this new era? Not how do we identify the breach between one and the next, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw, but a a while ago, I think it was a few months ago. Now there was an op-ed in the financial times saying, we need centralized planning to fight climate breakdown. And this was particularly mm. talking about the response from central banks. Do you mm. think that we're going to see a movement away from market-based solutions, which have obviously been kind of very in vogue ever since, you know, amongst mainstream politicians and policymakers really ever since we've kind of, you know, we in inverted commas have known about climate breakdown. Do you think we're going to be moving to a, to more kind of dirigist responses in line with the expansion and state action that we've seen during the pandemic and what does that mean for neoliberalism mm. that, that is a really um insightful way of framing things i i do sometimes think that one of the one of the biggest changes that we're experiencing actually and this is sort of the focus of my interest in writing right now is is our 
pretty significant transformation in how we understand uncertainty about the future. It seems to me that there's a sort of decaying of our capacity to to trust in ideas like equilibrium that hint that the future will be, in the long run, a fairly stable pattern with some bumps along the way. And now we're approaching, I think, an understanding of the future that's probably truer to where we're headed, which is that the very idea of equilibrium is, or or the return to normal um, is something that's quite dubious. And and knowing the future based on the past is, is a harder and harder task. And I say all that in preface to the answer of the question, because I do think that we will see more dirigiste, uh, centrally planned kinds of responses. I imagine central banks getting involved uh, quite heavily, though the bluntness of that instrument has always been decried by policy critics. And I think that we'll see that it's very, very blunt. That doesn't mean it's not useful. And I do think we'll see, as you say, more centrally planned responses at the policy level, nationally, perhaps internationally, almost certainly at a kind of regional level like the EU. But I don't know what that means for the centrality of markets to the way that we understand how the world, to the way that at least, you know, the powers that be understand the world has to work. I do think that one of the signal, I'm not saying anything new here at all, but I do think that one of the signal qualities of neoliberalism that is sometimes underemphasized relative to the kinds of privatization and liberalization, those sorts of framings, is the way in which the Power is organized not so much by the state in a kind of heavy-handed, as you say, dirigist way, but uses it uses markets as the tool of governance. So it doesn't just allow markets to do things. It actually creates markets or leans into markets to allow it to be the source of governance and regulation. And I think that's quite possible, a sort of whacked mix of neoliberal market-oriented or market-dependent kind of thinking, along with a a more heavy-handed dirigist attempt to shape those markets. So insofar as neoliberalism might be unfolding in a new way, I definitely don't think we're past it or beyond it. And I actually fear, I really fear the attempt to kind of save markets in this frame, because I think it's quite possible that that is not only the knee-jerk reaction of, you know, most policymakers, at least in the wealthy part of the world, but it's also... Uh, an attempt to kind of unfold some version of what Joel and I call Leviathan, you know, which I would define as at the simplest as climate Leviathan is what it looks like when capital finally responds to climate change. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to just pick Sorry, up one. Sorry, yeah, there's, there's lots there. There's lots there. Uh, and you, you alluded there to a, a brilliant article that you wrote, Irrational Expectations, that I want to ask you about in a bit. But I want to just pick up on on one of the threads in there, because neoliberalism, let's say, is is premised, you know, amongst other things on the separation of the political from the economic, uh, the kind of marketization of society um, and this kind of real divide between what is seen as kind of market and and state power and actually the kind of incursion of the market into the state apparatus and and all the other ways that we we run our lives. But at the same time, we're moving into an era we're going to see much more kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, state intervention. And also what you just talked about, which was a decline in um, the, uh, the the trust in the idea of equilibrium, I suppose, which stems from this idea of uncertainty, which obviously means, you know, really 
that trust and equilibrium is central to the whole market ideology that suggests that we can kind of, you know, run society as if it were a market. If you don't have equilibrium, then that ideology really starts to fall apart and you start to see many more calls for active state intervention to correct for market failures. And it just seems like those two things then end up blending so much that you, that this this separation of the political from the economic starts to break down because you have the politicization of the economic and also the kind of incursion, well, continued incursion of like the growth of political management of the economy in inverted commas. That kind mm-hmm. of feels like a pretty big departure from neoliberal rationality. No, that's a really good point. I, I think it is a departure, whether or not it's a break. And again, perhaps mm. this distinction I'm trying to make is is either purely academic in the bad sense of that term, you know, or whether or not it's, I guess what I'm concerned about it is the idea that some of the transitions that we're seeing at least attempted right now in terms of the policy frameworks and the way in which governments or the state more broadly might have understand itself to have a role in, in dealing with climate change. What I'm somewhat kind of concerned about is the idea that together these policy responses on offer right now, let's say, mark a drastic shift in the political economic arrangements under which we live. And I think that would be, to some extent, an overstatement. Because it's really, I think, for example, quite possible to imagine some version of what you might call a neoliberal Keynesianism. In fact, I think you see some of the most prominent economic economists, economic policy kind of wonks, uh, calling for precisely that sort of thing. I mean, this is what I understand Paul Krugman to usually be saying. You know, an extraordinary faith in the markets. It's the go-to response. And then when the markets, as you say, fail, then we turn to the state. But that is, again, to always put the markets primary. And I think that we're still there. So insofar as that's very different or uh, an unraveling of some of the bases of what we've traditionally understood neoliberalism to be, yes, I agree. But I also think that we would be mistaken to say that some transformation is about, is underway at this moment. And I'm not sure that you're suggesting that in any way, but... I'm not. I completely agree with you. I just wanted to yeah. push you on that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I think um, it's totally fair. And I don't yeah. really know, of course. This is the other thing is that, you know, these conversations uh, that you and I and many others who are super interested in this stuff might have is that we, you know, we, in some ways, the framing of the conversation itself suggests a certainty that I certainly don't feel like I have. <laughs> mm. You mentioned that the idea of neoliberal Keynesianism, which... I, I've not heard that term before, and I think it's fantastic. Because um, I, 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 I want to talk as well in a bit about your book on Keynes, which I absolutely loved. I read quite a while ago now, and I thought it was just fantastic. Neoliberal Keynesianism. To what extent is this just bastard Keynesianism? Is just this just the kind of the neoclassical synthesis, bits of Keynes with the radical elements stripped out, as the post-Keynesians might argue? It's pretty darn close. That's for sure. I guess... Uh, the only, if I was going to, you know, try and make a distinction between the two, I would suggest that when Joan Robinson coined that term, as you know, but maybe listeners won't know, that coined this term "bastard Keynesianism" in the '60s to rightly, you know, come come back at the various ways in which neoclassical economics had, had attempted to kind of reabsorb Keynesian wisdom um, and make it 
not a challenge to the overall understanding of how the economy worked. When she coined that term bastard Keynesianism, she was in some ways writing in a moment in which uh, she could generally rely on the fact that Keynesianism itself, at least as a sort of larger economic approach, had to some extent become part of the foundation of economic knowledge in that sense that one could describe bastard Keynesianism as emerging from at least partly Keynesian soil. While I would never want to argue that, you know, in the 90s or 2000s, Keynesianism had gone away, I definitely don't think it had. It had become common knowledge or uh, common sense in many ways. But I do think that when we talk about a kind of neoliberal Keynesianism, like is perhaps emerging right now, especially around the climate, but also around inequality and some other very significant challenges, we're talking about a Keynesianism that is in some ways attempting to squirm its way back into what is a very neoliberal foundation. And so it's not so much bastard Keynesianism as it is a somewhat mollified neoliberalism, if that makes any sense. Mm. And that is imp- that distinction, if, if I'm in any way being fair to the problem at hand, that distinction is important because the base assumptions are neoliberal and we are tweaking them with Keynesian insights, let's say. Whereas when uh, Robinson was writing, one could argue that the situation was much different in terms of just how we understood what was possible. Mm. And I want to ask you now about I suppose this is, I mean, this is intimately linked actually to what you were just talking about, but you wrote this piece, Irrational Expectations in in Viewpoint Magazine, which I read a while ago and just really, really resonated with me. And one thing that it made me think about, which is related to a lot of your other work, is this idea of the carbon bubble, which is a kind of mainstream term that uh, a lot of economists are using, which says that, you know, there's a bubble in financial markets to the extent that the valuations of a lot of, let's say, you know, firms that are exploiting fossil fuels don't account for the fact that either those fossil fuels are going to have to stay in the ground or a lot of the value is going to be destroyed anyway because of climate change. So can you explain what you were arguing in that piece around irrational expectations and how this idea of the carbon bubble is linked to that crisis of expectations and, and you know, traditional orthodox economics rationality that you talked about in the piece? The piece is, as you know, because you've read it, but the piece is, is basically an attempt to think about uh, the role of almost uncritically accepted common sense in many economic circles, including economic policy circles, of a, a way of thinking about the larger attempt to understand the economy according to so-called rational expectations, which is an extremely powerful paradigm that emerged in the 1970s in large part as a response to Keynesianism. And it it is market central in a way that is kind of astounding, I think, for when people who have no familiarity with academic economics hear about how rational expectations is explained, explains the world that they can hardly believe it. And it, it's hard to criticize them for being surprised. But it is the assumption that in an attempt to understand macroeconomic dynamics, the most important thing or one of the most important things to do is to understand the basic basic decision-making processes of rational actors that make up the individual units that constitute the economy. And those folks are understood to be basically agents with incredible foresight incredible anticipation, anticipatory mechanisms in their production decisions and consumption decisions. They're understood to be what in formal economics is called homo economicus, 
a kind of automaton-like response to market stimuli. And if those expectations are rational about how the economy unfolds, then rational expectations macroeconomics basically says that the economy will unfold in the way that people expect it to, because their anticipatory behavior will produce the outcomes they expected. So in other words, rational expectations means that market-oriented actors acting in the market will produce an economy that looks exactly or very darn close to what they expect. Now, if you can say that, then economic policy becomes a problem of just manipulating people's expectations to produce the market-based outcome that one chooses. And the piece was written as an attempt to kind of point out how useless that way of thinking appeared. Well, you know, a lot of us said it was useless beforehand, but definitely came to appear immediately upon the onset of the pandemic. Mm. And so it was a critique of this rational expectations thinking, which assumes that the market synthesizes and makes coherent all of the knowledge that is available at any one time in the world, effectively. It's, it's an almost crazy level of assumption. And so when you point to something like the carbon bubble, which, as you said, is just an, a pointing to the way that certain market values do not reflect what we might think of as the long-term value of many, many assets, like, for example, uh, oil and gas reserves or other polluting uh, products or processes. And if that carbon bubble exists, but we pretend that the market is delivering all the information that's necessary for us to make decisions, then of course, we're going to make decisions, stupid fucking decisions based on the value of a bubble that is meaningless. Here in North America, we often talk about stranded assets. I'm not sure if that's yeah. uh, you know, a related term. And, and I think that those two things are very closely linked, but not, and they're linked not only in the kind of troubling way that we're obviously building an economy on the basis of a energy system that we now know and have known for decades is a total disaster. But we're also, insofar as leaning on at least the remnants of that same kind of economic thinking, our response is again to, of course, turn to the market to try and somehow tweak or, or leak that bubble. Because we say, okay, let's just produce a, an optimal carbon tax that will, as you say, force producers to internalize the externalities, as they say, you know, the, the costs that are actually associated with owning shares in it. ExxonMobil or something like that. And therefore, their production processes will increase in cost appropriate to dealing with the problem. But there, there are a couple of problems with that approach too, which are, you know, the first and most obvious is that it is nowhere the case. An effective behavior-altering carbon tax basically doesn't exist on the planet. Mm. And so that's a problem because the, the assumption that the political mechanisms that can put that into place you know, we don't have any evidence that that's the case. Um, and the second is that, again, it centralizes markets as the response mechanism. Taxes work in a market system because the market distributes the forces of those taxes. It's not a democratic, controlled, issue-specific response in any sense. It's just a hope that price mechanisms will send the right signals. And there is no guarantee that it will. None at all. One of the economists most closely associated with this way of thinking about uh, about climate breakdown is um, William Nordhaus, who won the not the Nobel Prize in economics, um, because <laughs> as I'm sure many of my listeners will know, it's not a real Nobel Prize, but we can talk about that another day. <laughs> you And you mentioned that you'd read his most recent book and were going to write a review of it without giving us too many spoilers, because I know it's not out yet. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about why this book is 
so bad. <laughs> so Nordhaus, as you mentioned, is perhaps the, you know, the climate economist. And in many ways, he did lay the basis for what we can understand as economics attempt, successful or not, to kind of confront climate change. And he has been doing so for decades, long before most of his colleagues. But the result, as many people know, has been a kind of what some of what some of us might describe as a kind of palliative care model uh, to to the global economy. That's unfair, of course. But the the, the idea is that the, the, what we need to do is to figure out the offset cost. We need to offset the costs of the loss of future utility of our behavior now, which is effectively reducing the economic problem to a kind of cost benefit. Uh, between the future and the present. And one's assessment of the value of the future and the present relative to each other, of course, can produce an optimal path that shows, for example, the right price of carbon, the appropriate tax level, across a certain time trajectory. So the first problem with the book, in my view, are exactly the kinds of things I was just talking about. The assumption that, again, markets are the solution, we just need to tweak them, and they will produce the outcomes we need. We have no evidence of that, especially in so existential uh, uh, a realm as climate. But the other problem, the bit, perhaps the bigger one, is the, for lack, I'm going to use a big term and I apologize, the sort of epistemological basis of the book, which is that what we have now is in some ways the political economic equilibrium state of human history. We have reached a point This is the underlying assumption of the book, where liberal democratic political institutions and market-based, if somewhat tweaked, economic mechanisms are kind of, you know, like the old growth forest of the human economy. We have reached this climax state, and now things are stable in a long-term equilibrium. So the modeling for all of this stuff and the price of carbon in 2100 or even further along, the modeling of all this is based on an assumption of almost absolute political and economic stability going on around it. As if we all just continued to be the shopping little units that we are while the (laughs) earth's temperature slowly cranks up. But every climate scientist that I've been able to speak to and and everyone that I've been able to read tells us, for one thing, that that's not how climate change is going to happen. And secondly, that it's totally implausible to imagine that political economic institutions in 2050 are going to look like they look today. I mean, we can see this unfolding or unraveling right around us right now in so many parts of the world. The, the idea that, 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 you know, we'll be chugging along and looking to Joe Biden's grandson in 2070 to help us through this tough patch is hilarious to me. But it underwrites the entire framing of the book and the world that it's trying to justify and defend. It's almost insane. I'm pulling my hair out, but you can't see me. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about the kind of political implications of the kinds of solutions that are being proposed, you know, by you know, capitalist states basically now. One of the reasons that I think this stuff isn't a break with neoliberalism is because both are fundamentally anti-democratic. So the neoliberal market-based solutions are an attempt to kind of turn political problems into technical ones. But neoliberal Keynesianism turns what is a collective problem into just a problem for elites to solve. Um, and this kind of links into your argument in Climate Leviathan. I want, yeah, I just like you to talk a little bit about, yeah, the kind of the implications for, well, just our politics in general, right? Like all the ways mm-hmm. in which power is exercised in in our societies of mm-hmm. this idea of, of kind of, let's say, neoliberal Keynesianism or whatever you want to call it. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think, as you say, it links very closely with with what Joel and I, Joel Wainwright, um, my co-author and uh, fantastic person and great uh, thinker, uh, what we tried to, to do in that book. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, as you know, having read the book, that we lay out a sort of series of very general trajectories or potential histories of the future in the face of climate change and the attempts on the part of certain factions with power to manage the implications as it unfolds. And the one that we lean on the hardest, because we think it's the most likely, at least in the medium term, we call climate leviathan. And in its kind of liberal capitalist version, as I said earlier, it it, it looks a lot like what will happen when uh, polities like you and I live in, uh, where capital really pulls most of the strings, when that state-based political economic mechanism attempts to try to manage climate change in the interests of keeping the social hierarchy in the same order that it currently exists. And so you can imagine capital trying to rework itself in a way that maintains its status and place in the larger overall social organization, but does so in a way that manages climate change. And we can see this, I think, unfolding right now, especially in, you know, sort of the the consistently desperate attempts to bring the powers that be together at the COPs, the one in Glasgow coming up, but the ones in the past two, Copenhagen and Paris, but also in, you know, the mild attempts of the Obama administration to deal with climate change or the very duplicitous efforts here in Canada on the part of the Trudeau administration to confront climate change, but also not confront it, to centralize the fossil fuel industry while claiming that that's the only way that we can pay for climate adaptation. These kinds of mechanisms, I think, are all part of what Joel and I were calling uh, sort of incipient climate leviathan. But there are other you know, possibilities, of course, but they all depend, as you just indicated very clearly, they all depend upon a kind of either existing regime of political power that's very different than the ones in the wealthy northern part of the world, or they depend upon massive political transformations in the distribution of power, both across social groups, but also across scales. So the the most hopeful one that Joel and I outline, which we call Climate X, partly because it was almost impossible to imagine what it would look like, uh, all, requires not only, of course, the democratization in some senses of uh, communities' capacity to respond to climate change, but the, also, the, for lack of a better term, the decentralization of that capacity and those are political transformations that at least right now seem quite far-fetched, even though I think they could immediately become quite imaginable, uh, depending upon you know, how things unfold over the next decades. But then we sort of describe two rather more authoritarian uh, processes, uh, one of which you know, is sort of well-characterized by Bolsonaro or Trump. Um, and the other is, of course, to try to think about the role of China uh, in the global economy, which... Mm. I personally am wary of, because I'm not an expert, much of that knowledge comes from Joel, but it is something obviously that if we're going to think about how power is distributed over the next centuries, we're effectively having to place China very squarely in the center of any conversation and its relationships with, in particular, the US and and Europe. Um, So we'll see how that unfolds. I I think that uh, it's very hard to tell right now. Very, very hard to tell. 
I want to talk more about China in a second. But first, that point that you raised about the need to kind of democratize and decentralize. I am interested as to whether you think that that project of kind of democratization, democratization of society is something that can take place within Mm. the capitalist state apparatus or through the capitalist state. Can we imagine a democratized capitalist state, which actually through democratization becomes something different and alongside that the democratization of other other social institutions the corporation whatever or -hmm. is this something that is much more revolutionary than that in your view Mm. that is a very hard but worthwhile question i think that if i'm if i'm honest my knee-jerk reaction is no there is no way that capitalist state as it currently exists has the capacity to democratize itself in a way that maintains its organization as a capitalist state. (laughs) That seems uh, impossible to me, Mm. um, precisely because the very notions of democratization and decentralization that would be central to the transformation require uh, a de-securing of the hold that capitalist social relations has on, you know, the dominance of capitalist social relations on the larger sinews that hold society together. Mm. So it seems to me that the very idea of democracy and capitalism, you know, don't go easily together and perhaps uh, cannot go easily together. That said, the kinds of transformation that we might describe as necessary right now are revolutionary, I would argue, but in there's a way I think at least I have of thinking about revolution. And perhaps it's from, you know, just the kinds of historical lessons that, you know, we're taught uh, in preschool, all the way high school, all the way through, you know, so the understanding of revolution is very, I think we tend to think of revolutions as being somewhat monolithic and, and also nation state centered, of course. And I guess I would say that the, the key will be to think about revolutions, S, and to think of them as, in some ways, multiscalar, multiple, and appropriate to the places in which they unfold, in other words, as democratic themselves. And it is the case, I think, that much of the thinking about the kind of revolutionary transformations that have been necessary in the past, and are, I would argue, necessary now, is that Actually, revolution itself is not the, the revolution itself as an act of popular will is not often understood as a democratic process at all, and in fact hasn't unfolded as one quite often. And I think when you look at someone like, you know, the, the Rosa Luxemburg in sort of historical thinking about revolution, it's why she stands out so clearly because in the midst of basically a heavy-handed, almost authoritarian approach to radical politics, she stood up and said, no, no, we need to be able to critique the revolution constantly from within, from our place. And that destabilization of the revolutionary momentum was always understood as, you know, undermining the cause itself. We cannot have the fidelity to one notion of what is required now. I would completely disagree with the idea that somehow a total commitment to some future state is necessary. Democracy itself is to allow for the persistence of politics that are different than our own, Um, you know, obviously within a range. Um, And and I I have a, a lot of fear that 
the radical response to the crises that are unfolding at the present will take the form of an arrogant an arrogant radicalism that claims to know the answer and to lead us to a place that it can identify that I think no one can identify right now. And I think that that, that arrogance is precisely what condemns radical politics so often to a kind of fizzling mm. out. Just to return to Luxembourg, for example, even in her incredible confidence and her, you know, outrage and her fights with Lenin and the rest and the sort of admirable, you know, unwillingness to buckle to the party line, there's always a generosity and a modesty mm. with her colleagues. Not, of course, with, you know, the people she understood as her enemies, for lack of a better term, but with her colleagues, a generosity and a modesty. And that I cannot emphasize enough how important I think that is at this moment, uh, especially. Jeff Mann, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great to chat with you.